We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I always say that a problem is the result of unmet needs. You know, what are the needs that aren't getting met? The, you know, whether it's an animal health need or it's a soil biology need or whatever it happens to be. This is the Big Shift for Small Farms podcast. G'day listeners, I'm your host Edgar Greste. In Australia, we farm predominantly introduced livestock species like cows, pigs, sheep and chooks, and we grow a lot of them. So in this episode, we're looking at how to keep your livestock healthy. When animals get sick, how do we treat the cause instead of the symptom? And what role does their environment play? In this episode, we'll talk to farmers about matching the right livestock for their patch and meeting their nutritional needs. And we'll hear from a grazing management consultant about why looking after your livestock could save you big bucks and improve not only your livestock's health, but your own well-being too. My name is Anika Molesworth and I live in far western New South Wales on Willakali land and it is a gorgeous part of the country, wild untamed beauty of ruby red soils and sapphire blue skies and it's this endless horizon for me every morning to go out there and to see nature and to have the privilege of working alongside of nature. So I feel very lucky to live where I do and to to do the work I do. As well as farming with her parents, Anika has a PhD in agricultural science, speaking and writing about agroecological systems resilience. And she's also a founding director of Farmers for Climate Action, a farmer-led organisation that advocates for climate solutions which support rural communities. And her message is that our changing climate is a critical factor to livestock health. For a big picture first, climate change impacts livestock in various ways, animals in various ways, in that higher temperatures can cause stress, reduced fertility, increased mortality, reduced rainfall reduces the availability of water and makes the the quality of water often worse also. Climate change also changes the the distribution and prevalence of pests and diseases which affect livestock, so ticks, you know, lice, things like that are changing where they are. Anika's researched and written on this extensively because she's directly experienced the impacts of climate change on her own family farm. So on my family property, the previous owner had European breeds, Hereford cattle, Merino sheep. And when we purchased 20 years ago, we decided to look at African breed of sheep, which are more hardy to drought, you know, drier conditions. And so we got to the, the Dorper and Damara sheep breed and they yeah did very well out here, um, you know, looked plump and healthy, you know, sold for good weights. So that was terrific. We also recognised on our property that we had a number of rare and threatened species. And so we decided to make conservation reserves. So we fenced off these rare and threatened species to make sure that they would regenerate, that they wouldn't be challenged by grazing pressures. We increased the the size of many of our dams because there is a drying trend and we are reliant on rainwater. So when rain does fall, we want to catch it in in these large in-ground water tanks. And we also 
we graze very much with the seasonal conditions. So we fluctuate our, our livestock numbers greatly. And because of the severity of this current drought that we're currently living in, we've destocked the property. So we're not putting any grazing pressure on our native vegetation and soils. In light of those practices that you've put into place on your own farm property, thinking you know more broadly, I'm mindful that each patch of Australia has its own context that we need to be mindful of. But thinking about the bigger picture of livestock farming in Australia, where we you know, currently have around 23 million cows, 63 million sheep, what do you see as the future of this industry and, and how will it need to evolve in the face of you know, intensified climatic events like prolonged drought and intense fires and floods? You know, what is the message and what do we need to do? Yeah, well, I guess it's things right along the food system. So we need to absolutely on farms make sure we're taking care of animal welfare, you know, first and foremost, and making sure that they have adequate shade, good water quality and available water all the time, breeding at certain seasons to make sure that they are not stressed and you're not losing young animals. But then there also needs to be at the, the consumer end, in relation to diets, people need to be conscious of, you know, how much meat they're consuming, because that obviously dictates how many sheep and cattle are actually out there. And, you know, questioning what nutrients do I need as an individual and where do I source them? And again, there's no easy answer for this. And we also then need to be speaking about the, the food waste conversation too. I mean... If you're going to purchase steaks or a roast lamb or something like that, please don't let that go to waste and end up in, in a bin and in, in landfill. I mean, we have to respect the animal, the life that that actually came from and the nutrients caught in it. So again, it's going to be yeah right along the whole food system that we need to make improvements. From a wider systems view, another way to help us think about animal health is to look at it on an individual level. We humans are, are animals, and if I went for a, a run today in 42 degrees heat and was asked to be thinking and moving, I, I would personally get very stressed by that. And so that's why we don't move sheep on very hot days like this. You know, we are conscious of the seasonal conditions and when we should be working with livestock and when we should be just leaving them alone because they need to be resting and have their quiet time because the environmental climate weather conditions can be stressful enough. I think also as farmers, observing the health of your livestock too and understanding that with changing temperature and precipitation patterns, that there are changes in pests and diseases too. And so, you know, working very closely with animal health experts and vets to understand, you know, what are the new pests and diseases that are being observed in your region or in your livestock and how best to identify symptoms and to treat those symptoms. So the three, environment, animal and humans, are incredibly interconnected. Like humans, animals get sick for a reason and you have to look at you know, the, the context, the system, the environment, um, the inputs that are going in, the outputs that are being demanded from the system. Something is out of balance, potentially, and so how do you 
restore that balance in the most environmentally and ethically responsible manner. Charlie Arnott from Burrawa, New South Wales. Our property name is Hannah Minow, and I would call myself a biodynamic farmer and educator. We produce beef and pork and lamb. We harvest sunshine to turn into meat. We like to think we're improving the quality of the soil. We harvest water. We advocate regenerative agricultural practices, and we support the uptake of that in any way that we feel is appropriate. Biodynamics is the the application of them is really about identifying what are the root causes of problems, disease. You know, I always say that a problem is the result of unmet needs. You know, what are the needs that aren't getting met? The you know, whether it's an animal health need or it's a soil biology need or whatever it happens to be. Let's get away from and we're getting away from, you know, our conventional industrial type of farming where we were caught up in a system of treating symptoms. And that's wonderful for those that you're buying the stuff from that helps treat the symptoms animal health products as an example so when we we encounter a animal health problem you, we just don't go and give it a drench or do whatever to, to try and treat that symptom we ask the question why is that animal sick in the first place and it's you know it's going to be something to do with the diet you know the environment they're living in the quality of the water nutritional requirements of the animal are they getting met with the pasture they're on and when we look at that and we ask those questions then we can understand the most effective way to treat that symptom. It's to treat the cause. Uh, we don't always get it right, but that's the most effective way to, to get often the, the cheapest outcome. Because once we start treating, if, we, if we're still in the mindset of treating symptoms, invariably we're going to create another symptom. You know, if we take weeds out of a paddock by spraying them because we don't want those weeds there, something's going to replace it, right? The weed is there because it has a function in that landscape we just take it out, something else is going to try and is, be, is going to be recruited into that space. So from an animal health point of view, something that's pretty simple really is worm burden in money sheep, not so much cattle, but in sheep. So we graze in a particular way, very considered, where animals are grazing, they're only grazing for a few days at a time, and then that paddock recovers for between one and five months, depending on the time of year and the season. And that breaks worm cycles. In a conventional situation where sheep might be grazing in a paddock for some weeks or months even. The worms are come out of the body in the faeces. Those eggs will hatch and crawl up the grass and that animal you know, who's still in the paddock will go and eat that and the cycle continues. And if we're in that sort of system, what do we do? We go and, oh, we've got big worm burden, let's go and drench them. And that's another conversation about how there's a difference between the worm burden and what the effect of that burden is. Animals who are healthy, even though they might have a high worm burden, as in number of eggs in there you know, per gram of, in, of faeces, Healthy animals can, can put up with that. You know, it doesn't mean those eggs are going to hatch. doesn't mean it's going to be a problem for those animals. An unhealthy animal, those eggs are more likely to hatch because the, the worms are there to do a job, and that's to take out the weak of that species in you know, the sheep. And they're, why are they weak? They're unhealthy. You know? Why are they unhealthy? Well, they may not be getting the diet, the nutritional requirements met. The quality of the water might be crap. They might be stressed the whole time because the people handling them are yahooing and carrying on. There's lots of reasons why they might be unhealthy. Managing grazing is one way that Charlie addresses the causes of unhealthy livestock. He also supplements their diet with a diverse range of minerals and nutrients. Our supplement regime is considered as well, so we don't give them artificial, I guess you'd call them supplements. You know, we use copper, we use sulphur, we use Himalayan rock salt and seaweed as well. And they get to choose what they want. 
even giving sheep in the conversation around worms access to some of our native flora you know them being able to nibble on the seeds of wattles and browse on some of the native species and the tannins in there can help flush worms out giving animals pumpkin seeds and garlic uh, and apple cider vinegar on a full moon will, will help flush out worms now you don't need to do that if the animals are healthy you know, and that's just sort of, that's just one of many examples from a sheep worm burden sort of cycle situation. You know, going and drenching them is not going to solve the problem. It's not attending to the root cause. And when you attend to the root cause, as I said, it's often cheaper. It's much more long term. At the end of the day, it's generally a more natural way to do it, and the outcome is much you know, much healthier animals. If it's a health problem we're talking about, and we can talk for ages about weed burden as it were in paddocks Um, and even insects you know you take an insect out that is in a plague proportion let's just say why is it in plague proportion you know because things are out of balance nothing was out of balance before we came and and sort of disturbed things as a as a a species you know in in such large numbers on such a large scale with lots of mechanical things and all this sort of inconsiderate farming practices so you take an insect insect out that you think is in plague proportion it's there because it's trying to take out something that's sick whether that's a plant or it's an animal or whatever it is, you take that species out, everything above and below in that food chain, because it isn't a food chain, is going to be affected. You take that animal out, everything above it is going to um, starve because that food source is not there, and everything below it is just going to explode because it's not being predated on anymore. So it's these unforeseen consequences that this prescriptive farming creates. And we get stuck, it's like, oh man, I just treated that, and then that's happened. And then what do you do? You've got to go and get a bag or something and treat that. And then you, and it happens again. It's this, it's this vicious vicious cycle. So when we step back, treat causes, we, some might say, nip things in the bud. But it's not just about going, oh, that job's done. It's about really reflecting on what did I learn? You know, what are some of the consequences of even treating the cause that, I might, that might pop up that we need to really consider? How's that going to affect the bottom line or the animal or the plants? You know, so it's a really considered planned approach you know the definition of success or luck whatever you want to call it is the is the confluence of preparation and opportunity planning is all about being prepared and being preemptive as much as you can and considering different scenarios and gathering the data and setting goals making decisions and it's not that you can't go wrong but you have the most chance of success It doesn't matter whether it's one horse in a little paddock or it's a thousand head of cattle in a large paddock, it's still about managing feed supply and feed demand. That's James Barnett, grazing management consultant with Resource Consulting Services. You know, we've had a a rather nasty dry spell over the last uh, two to three years. And in many cases, the managers actually didn't manage the resource that they had because they didn't go into it with a plan. And we have examples uh, when the floods were on in North Queensland a couple of years ago. A number of our clients actually survived those floods quite well. Funnily enough, they'd been planning for a drought, but they had a plan and the plan enabled them to have their stock in good condition to withstand the pressures of the water and the cold that followed the flood. Whereas those that didn't have a plan their stock were emaciated and weak. And so the water was able to wash them away and or they died of cold. So it's about getting a plan to manage our system. We have six grazing principles that we work to, but 
The first three are the really important ones. And the first one is plan, monitor and manage. So we need to plan and manage and see how much feed we might have in that one horse paddock. And is it capable of running that horse for how long? It doesn't matter how long, but we need to know. And that's a plan, isn't it? It's as simple as that. The second principle is we need to be able to give plants rest. And we quite often don't do that. The longer rest period that is given to those plants allows them to be more productive and allows them to be more resilient and keep the, we the weeds, whatever that weed might be, in our perception, away. Because we've now got a healthy environment. So it's no different in the paddock. It's about moving into that space. And then the next thing we need to do in our paddocks with our animals is we need to be able to adjust and match our stocking rate, which is the downward pressure on the grass that's put on by livestock versus the ability of the grass to grow. So we've got this downward pressure, which is actually demand, and the upward pressure, which is supply, and we need to match those. And what we don't do in many cases is plan to match those. We come in and bulldoze our way through the process and take it down to the floorboards and wonder why we then have weeds and other issues, erosion and, and so forth starts to happen. Whereas if we actually maintain our plants in a healthy state through rest and matching stocking rate to carrying capacity, we can have a strong, resilient pasture that is resistant to drought, that is resistant to, to floods and resistant to all sorts of elements such as wind, etc. The dust that you guys have experienced along the coast, and I live at Orange and I've lived here for 18 months and I've now had 15 months of dust. That really shouldn't be happening because if we'd matched our stocking rate to carrying capacity, we would have had adequate ground cover, and we don't do that. You know, when we think about healthy livestock, we sometimes need to flip it around and, and think about healthy landscapes, which will lead to healthy livestock. And you talked about carrying capacity and, and obviously moving grazing animals off country to allow for rest. And some of that might even mean destocking. And I get that that can be a challenge for some farmers who need to have animals on their property because that's part of what farming is for many people in that, in that mindset. Can you talk a little bit about that bigger picture of thinking about being land managers first and then animals are kind of a byproduct of that? Absolutely. So the issue that you've just identified is a major issue and we can't run livestock without grass. Uh, well, we can. We can import it. Fodder at vast expense. But the point is that when we start to feed livestock in a drought situation, we actually don't know when it's going to finish. So we've just signed a blank cheque and that is what causes major, major financial and emotional stress. So it is important to come back to matching the carrying capacity of the country. So it might involve the reduction of livestock. It might involve the total destocking of a property. And that does create resistance. It's a great point you make because how can I be a grazier if I haven't got any stock to graze? But first of all, we're actually in business too. And we have a tool which we call a grazing chart, which 
if we, we can have that electronically or we can do it on paper. And we use a series of calculations that allow us to create scenarios so that we can be proactive in knowing what a lack of an amount of rainfall will do to our grazing capacity and therefore the carrying capacity of the country. And so using the grazing chart, we can get an indication that it might be important to destock totally. But if we use this tool and destock, we'll generally be in front of the market because no one else realises that things are quite as bad as they could be. And so we don't suffer penalties. Whereas if we're in the middle of the drought and we realise it's now time to destock, the market is suppressed because of huge influx of numbers and it costs us a lot of money. The fear that people have is that if I do what you tell me to do, I've got to buy them back and they're going to cost me a fortune at the end of the drought. The point that they've all forgotten is that throughout every drought, in every district, it does rain. And if you haven't got stock there, you grow grass and the environment's still healthy. So you'll be actually able to restock before anyone else can and potentially be buying in that suppressed market as long as you don't overdo it. And once again, it comes back to the grazing chart, which is a tool which allows you to plan and budget how much capacity you might have. The important thing is that most people don't do is to actually go out and do a feed budget. How much grass have I got? How much uh, time have I got out there in the paddock in front of me? Have I got a hundred days worth of feed? Have I got a year's worth of feed? Have I got 20 days worth of feed, and by God, I better move quickly. It's a process that involves a little bit more thought. It's not difficult, it just involves a little bit more thought. One farmer who thinks a lot about his cattle is Joe Kovacek. He's the farm production coordinator at Western Sydney University's farm, based out in the Hawkesbury, New South Wales. What does healthy livestock mean for you? Yeah, prime condition, shiny coated, and yeah, happy. Happy livestock, basically. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of people have, yeah, rough-coated cattle. We don't want to see a rough-coated cattle. We don't want to see them lean. Even during the tough times, you can still look after them throughout the year. Yeah, I take it on to great responsibility, obviously, because we're on a, on a main road frontage and we're a university. We need to be held accountable to high regard. Joe runs a self-replacing cattle and sheep operation across the farm's four properties, and his priority is to match the needs of his animals with the right paddocks. Recently, we just implanted embryos into a run of heifers we put them on a good nutritional diet of some of our best paddocks of our multi-species pastures and we ended up with a 100% success rate on implanted embryos. So that's a classic example of a healthy animal. One of Joe's challenges is the landscape he's farming on and his management is adapted for those conditions. And that's one of the reasons why the Hawkesbury Ag College decided to build a farm or educational precinct on this land was the fact that it's, yeah, it's challenging. So the, yeah, the problem is yeah, sand over clay uh, waterlogged country because it's, yeah, it's sort of basically a floodplain. A lot of people are trying to grow cattle that aren't suited to their, their environment or genetically not suited. You have to have a cattle sense as well or a livestock sense and understand genetics and performance and cattle with a good constitution that'll convert lower palatable forages into a, a more saleable product. You can't just go and buy steers and just uh, hope for the best. A lot of people don't touch on different classes of stock so well, my personal opinion, you still have to have different grazing strategies for different classes of stock. You don't want heifers at the last trimester to be on loosened paddocks. You still need to have those paddocks at the back that you can throw the, the cows that are about the calves just to maintain themselves, not to get too fat. Then we need yeah, pastures to suit 
growing steers to fatten for the local butcher market. So you still have to change your grazing management to different mobs of cattle. And that's one thing that people do forget about when they do chickens, ducks, pigs, and they do multi-species animals per paddock, you will end up with cross-contamination in the future, which will bite them one day. We don't want to be letting cattle get botulism. We don't want them to get coccidiosis. We don't want them to get zoonotic diseases from high-intensity mixed species. But you need enough time to, yeah, to spell those paddocks in the meantime. So you can incorporate your chickens and your pigs, but you've got to watch out for the pathogens. The key here is to manage the timing of grazing animals in the paddocks. But as well as meeting his livestock's grazing needs, Joe also provides mineral supplements for a healthy diet. Animals will tell you what they need and when they need it. And that's one of the, I suppose, the disadvantage of high-intensity grazing. If you do put a lot of cattle in one paddock for X amount of time, we're there to improve the soil, but we also don't want to compromise the animal's performance because that animal can't just forage for those selective minerals that are potentially there. A lot of people like to talk about the African savannah migrational animals. They'll migrate for six months to lick the salt licks of Zambia. They find minerals. We have to give them free choice minerals because they can't go and forage and find them themselves because they're enclosing paddocks, obviously. And you'll see that even in the Alps, a lot of the goats, the goats will climb rock walls, you know, where they find the salt coming, leaching from the, from the mountains. So I'm, I'm a big believer of salt, mineral licks, plus liquid products in the water. If they're bellowing and milling and, and wanting to move to another paddock, you obviously got some sort of deficiency. That's one of the things I don't find with a lot of people that talk about particular regen is understanding your livestock as a whole, basically. To understand you know, what's a healthy animal, what to look out for, not just, I'm going to put 200 animals in this paddock for 24 hours and move it, and I'm saving the world. It doesn't work like that. There's a lot more to it. You can't compromise on performance and, and let those animals go backwards because they're eating a low-quality forage to expect to make money from it. You still have to, obviously, it's still a business. And you'll find that with a lot of people, they, yeah, they've got large moulds, but their cattle aren't performing. Some people are happy to wean calves at 150 kilos at nine months and call themselves quality farms. It doesn't work like that. You should be weaning in excess of yeah, 350 to 400 kilo calves. While that cow is still back in calf, rearing a calf inside her, so she's only dry for a few months and she's already popping out another calf. So we keep on forgetting about the energy protein of the actual available pasture or the forage. So yeah, you can have your multi-species, you can have everything. And if you get a good year out of that, for example, this year, yeah, you might be doing everything right. But if it's, if it's not balanced correctly, there'll be unintended consequences, which some people find out the hard way. But there's a lot of storytelling happening and there's actually no educating on how to correctly fix it. So what I'm hearing is, is that real bigger picture from the soil to the pastures to the actual animals that you've got on the paddocks and be sensitive to all of them and not, not assume it's one thing or the other that's a problem. It's, it's taking that real big picture view. And I always overthink everything. And you know, don't wear blinkers out in the paddocks. Get out there, look at your cattle, see if they're bellowing, see what they're doing. Get down in the soil, dig it up, look at it, smell the ground, smell the grass, get a sap test, get a a fractometer and get a sugar test out in the paddock in the mornings, send a pasture sample off to a, a lab, see what you're actually dealing with, understand it all. I get that we've got to have that bigger picture. Have you got a tip for how to get us connected to each and individual element? You know, what's your advice? Cattle observation. You need to, if you're driving around all the time and you're looking at your paddocks and cattle and if they're sitting chewing their cud, that's telling you that they're getting enough energy, protein, and nutrition out of those pastures. If you're always seeing them forever grazing, they're lacking something, they're looking for something. 
Yeah, they still like to just do their their routines. Like obviously, they they rest and sleep at night, then they get up early, graze, and they'll have their morning siesta, a bit of a lunch, and then an afternoon siesta, then a late afternoon feed, then a sleep. <laughs> oh, the life of a cow. Sometimes I wish I could be one. <laughs> yeah, so that's why I like to still let a cow be a cow and let them. You have access to a large paddock at times. I'm not all about yeah, super high intensity grazing and moving fourteen thousand times a day because the animal still needs to rest, kick back, and read the paper. Now, I don't know which paper Joe's cows prefer to read, but the point is, it's important to let animals be animals, with the right kind of management. But it's also important to have the right kind of animals for your patch, like sheep farmer Cressida Keynes. The sheep that we milk, East Frisians, they originally come from the Netherlands, so in the area of Friesland. They're very suitable for this climate. Along with husband Michael, Cressida runs a sheep milk dairy and cheesery in Robertson, in the southern highlands of New South Wales. Can you describe what we're, what's, what's the scene that's in front of us? What are we looking at? So here we're looking at uh, the babies from this year, so the weaned lambs eating some incredibly bright green pasture. It's lovely looking at all those clover flowers there and just seeing those lambs kind of knee-deep in beautiful green pasture. So the way we deal with the lambs is that uh, the ewes will lamb and the, the lambs will stay with their mums for the first week as they uh, get their fill of colostrum. It's obviously vitally important for lambs to get that first very important gold milk called colostrum. And then we start a system of share milking. So that's where the lambs go with their mums for the day and then in the evenings we bring the mums in and we milk them and the lambs will stay in the nursery so they have hay and pellets overnight and basically they go to sleep anyway they just all sleep in a, in a beautiful big pile and then wait for their mums overnight and then we bring the ewes back in in the morning and we milk the ewes and then let all the lambs go back to their mums and when we do that it's the most incredible cacophony when the lambs are calling for their mums and finding their mums so 140 ewes and lots and lots of lambs who are yelling for their mums and it's just extraordinary to see how they all find them they just all know their lambs and the lambs know their mums you know so for about 10 minutes there's this huge noise and then there's just silence and all these little wagging tails as they're all getting their fill because uh, the ewes definitely do save milk for their lambs as well so you know we'll milk them out in the bales in the morning and then we let the lambs out and you can see their udders just absolutely fill up again so from a cheesemaker you're thinking ah but it's certainly the right thing for the lambs and we love watching the lambs growing out and getting really super strong and looking great on their mum's milk. Balancing production outcomes with the health needs of the animals comes from Cressida's farming philosophy, which is gentleness towards their ewes and the land. And monitoring the health of both comes from observation in the paddock and under the microscope. Because we see them coming into the into the dairy twice a day every day, we can tell, you know, if anybody's feeling a little bit off colour. In the early days, I was doing a lot of fecal egg counts, which I kind of do for fun sometimes now. <laughs> Everyone's got to have a hobby. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but really, I can I can tell so much by looking at them. We don't drench any of our adults. We do drench the lambs every now and then. Again, it depends on the season, I think. You know, the way we farm is to just 
just monitor things and react as to the climate. We certainly don't have a particular, you know, time that we drench or time that we do anything. We, we just really monitor the seasons and see sort of what happens and respond to that with the minimal intervention possible. But we do use drench because we don't just want to let the little lambs die if they, if they get a belly full of worms. And they will. I mean, we do have this incredible rainfall here, so that includes worms. And when they're little and they don't have enough weight behind them, that can overcome them. So as adults, and because we keep our sheep in such good condition and rotate the pastures and, you know, they're just always on the move, there really isn't an issue with the adults. But for the lambs, yeah, we will. I think it's also really important to understand the science behind what you're doing, you know, to understand what worms you're looking at or what the infection is or something like that, you know, to be able to treat it very specifically rather than using, you know, an antibiotic in a, in a broad sense or, you know, any sort of drench or something in a broad sense. I think taking it from a very science-based perspective means that you can use a very targeted approach, which, as I said before, is minimal intervention. For Cressida, Minimal intervention is part of their farming philosophy, which is to work with nature, which in their case also meant the choice of sheep breed to match their local environment. So just because of the particular breed of sheep that we milk, so they're East Frisians, they've been bred for generations to be milking animals, so that's in their personality, but also they're very suitable for this climate. There's another milking breed of sheep called the Awasi, which actually comes from Israel, so they're a desert breed, which would not be suitable for this climate. If we were to take our sheep down to the coast, they would really, really struggle and be very stressed because they wouldn't like the humidity you know they're very used to the high rainfall and the cold and you know it's it's really quite european this climate here so i think it's very much worth considering what sort of breed of animals you're running in in what sort of climate when we're looking at species for the future it is also looking at environments that are going to be similar to yours in 5, 10, 20 years. So we know out here in Broken Hill, it is going to be a certain number of degrees hotter. There's going to be a certain percentage of less rainfall. So where in Australia or where in the world does that climate and environment already exist? And what is living there? And so it is also having that forward thinking of, okay, well, for these environmental conditions of the future, what species will actually be well suited to this region? And should we be thinking about integrating those species now and not just, you know, hanging on to hope that whatever I've got in the paddock is gonna do fine and, you know, fingers crossed the scientists got it wrong. This podcast has been produced by the Grow Love Project on behalf of Greater Sydney Local Land Services. The episode was mixed and edited by me, Edgar's Grester, and the executive producer was Susanna Cable. Thanks to everyone who participated in the making of this episode. You can find out more about them in the show notes. And to listen to other episodes, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you know someone who could benefit, please share it with them. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.